0: Hello and welcome listeners. Before we get stuck into today's episode, just a flag. When we recorded this episode, we weren't aware that government had just announced after we'd recorded that they were hoping to roll out a national energy awareness campaign to reduce energy consumption and cut bills. We still don't know the details of this and we await to hear them. But uh, as you listen to this, you'll be more than aware that we didn't know the information. Anyway, enjoy. Uh, Look forward to hearing from you uh, and get stuck in.
2: Thanks. Welcome to Local Zero. Thanks for being with us. With you this time are myself Fraser Stewart and me Matt Hannon. Sadly no Becky today. She's full of the dreaded
0: lurgy and can barely speak. We wish her well and hope she feels better soon.
2: Yes get well soon Becky. So we talk a lot about fuel poverty about just transitions in this podcast and we make absolutely no apology for that. It's the big and important topic. It affects a lot of people. It affects all of us and not enough is being done about it. So today's episode is all about fuel
0: poverty in this current and deepening energy crisis. And of course, the transition to net zero,
2: what needs to happen, and how can we kickstart this action after years of inertia? We'll be hearing shortly from Amy Ambrose. Amy is a professor of energy policy at Sheffield Hallam University. Also joining us will be Jess Cook from National Energy Action. So if you haven't already, go
0: find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions over there. Also, please feel free to email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So Fraser, before we began, we had a few technical difficulties. And I think in the context of this episode of energy efficiency, energy bills and fuel poverty, we were struggling to get your Wi-Fi on. <laughs> and it turns out we had a, a nice, simple fix.
2: Yeah, the simple fix is, um, so for, for context, I, I work in what is a home office and definitely not a shed in my back garden. Shoffice. It's a shopice, yes. It's a shop-face. But the Wi-Fi is connected to the in the house, the router's in the house, and the only way that we can get stable Wi-Fi is if we open the back door, yeah. which is just... Nice and efficient. Excellent news for efficiency, excellent <laughs> so news we're for we're already planet. doing all the wrong things, uh, yeah. you know, before we talk about this. But my wife has like four dressing gowns on, but we've got stable connection for the, the duration of this episode. To live with a podcaster. <laughs> but we are doing some things right. We've
0: uh, actually had a couple of nice reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is wonderful. Thanks for keeping these come in. Keeps us right, keeps us on track and hopefully doing the, the things that you enjoy. So one from Viola Tom. Uh, Might be two people called Viola and Tom, we we weren't quite sure, or... Tom, who plays the viola. Either way, really wide-ranging discussion with people at the heart of local and national systems. A must-listen for people wanting to join the dots between local energy, net zero,
2: and just transitions. Top stuff. Yeah, thanks very much. I mean, a bit much, a bit gushy, but yeah, not bad. We'll take it.
0: We also had some other good news. Yesterday, we were at the the Strathclyde Medals, uh, an award ceremony the university runs thanks to one of our regular listeners, Roddy Yar, who's Head of Sustainability at Strathclyde University, nominated us for an award, which we, we got. Um, unfortunately, I was the only one to collect it because mm. Fraser, you're too busy fixing the world and yeah, yeah. and Becky was too uh, too poorly. Uh, but thank you, Roddy. Really appreciate the nomination and it's really great to, to have that recognition. Yeah.
2: It must have been devastating to have to take all that credit yourself, Matt. That must have been really difficult.
0: It was. I was <laughs> the only per- the, on- the only individual collecting a team award as well. So people were looking behind me thinking about <laughs> Russian dolls. There would be other <laughs> podcast hosts behind me, but uh, sadly they were not. And also thanks to our listeners. Uh, supporting us, uh, keeping us right. And what's been great over the last couple of weeks is we've been having loads of podcast episode suggestions. Now, Fraser, some of these may not jump off the page to you, but the first one, have you heard about bike buses?
2: I have uh, embarrassingly not heard about bike buses, Matt. Explain them. Well, a bike, a
0: bike bus, I'm no expert, okay? But a bike bus, as I understand it, is a, a collection of bicycles that do the same as a bus, uh, a school bus basically brings a load of kids together, obviously chaperoned by adults on, on our dangerous uh, and non-cycle-friendly streets. But they basically get the kids to school on the uh, on the bike. Other suggestions, community-led retrofit. Yeah, yeah. So how can communities do it rather than maybe waiting for you know big corporate to help you out? And another one I think we've got scheduled for the new year is council climate action scorecards. So how do we rate uh, the performance of our councils? So that's a really exciting one to come.
2: Yeah, yeah, we've done, we've we've skirted around the topic and talked quite a lot about the potential role of councils, local authorities. We had one local authority episode way, way back when I think that's worth going back and checking out. Mm-hmm. But it'd be good now as we kind of ramp up, as as we accelerate that the net zero transition with a focus on things like retrofit that are more likely to happen at the at the local level. Yeah, I think more more important and interesting than ever.
0: I think individually, you and I have been busy on this front. You mentioned. Just earlier that you might be having some solar being installed in the not too distant. Tell, tell us more.
2: Yeah, yeah. So the the plan when we we, we moved house um, back sort of to the neck of the woods that we come from, my wife and I, and we'd always planned to um, get solar if, if we could if we could afford to do it. We found a, a local installer via you know tradespeople and workies that we know in the area. And we're having our, our solar installed in the next couple of weeks. So we've got uh, eleven panels going up. We've got a, a five point one, five point three, five point something battery being installed alongside it. Oh, mama, that's that. That's big. It is. It is. It's a. It's an array that will do us more than enough. And if we think about or and or can't afford an EV or a hybrid down the line, it will cover us there. And mm. um, that should more than cover us and turn us sort of profitable and the, the are profitable by year 5 or 6 uh,
0: and you're getting them installed just in time for the winter solstice as well which is good
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we put a lot of, a lot of thought into it and we wanted to make sure that we you know we fully <laughs> get them get them just <laughs> in time
0: now that's fantastic i'm really excited and i well i think we there's an episode in the offing here around solar batteries evs these kind of home So somebody referred to it as a kind of domestic power plant. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, there's, there's a lot going on. There was a fantastic video on this um, run by Fully Charged, uh, Robert Llewellyn there. Um, If you haven't watched any of the videos there, please do some fantastic stuff. And they basically did a tour of his house uh, that he'd been um, basically renovating over the last 15 years or so. And he's just got everything that I I could possibly dream of, but he's kind of been there and done it really worth, uh, really worth a look. Yeah. Um, I've kind of made a step forward as well. We we traded in, we've we've, we've got one car, uh, very lucky to have a car, diesel estate, so sort of planet wrecking
2: yeah, piece the full, of kit that we felt yeah.
0: guilty about turning the engine on every day. Looked at battery electric, begrudgingly figured out we couldn't really afford a battery electric, which would do the sort of short and the long journeys, fit the whole family in, da-da-da-da. So we've ended up basically trading in the car that we had for an identical car, but instead of being a diesel, it's a plug-in hybrid. And whilst the range is probably only about 20 miles on a, on battery alone, which is not much, what's been fascinating, Fraser, is that we've been able to cover about 80% of our mileage over the last 10 days, just from, from that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of the chat is, how big is the range? 250 miles if you're in a Tesla, maybe 300. 20 will get you a long way. Yeah. Because... If, if you're doing the school run, hop into work, going to the shops, you know, it, it does a lot of what you need. So that's been interesting. That is interesting. And it's made me look at a lot of the stuff that you're now installing, solar, solar batteries. Uh, could we get a hot water cylinder because we are uh, on an on a Octopus Go, so this is an off-rate system. We get ah, power, okay, which is 7.5 pence per kilowatt hour. Yeah. So it's it's like a gateway drug. It's opening up a whole lot of other thinking for me.
2: Yeah, I, I can see that. I can see it. And we we feel it as well. So we we spoke about solar. We'd always spoke about a, a heat pump because we're, we're insulated to the, to the back teeth. We did a lot of it ourselves, a lot of yeah. it with sort of, again, most of my family are, are trades uh, in, in one way or another. So we did a lot of that, made sure it was energy efficient. Then we thought, right, do we go for... What did, we, we never thought, right, that's us. We thought, what do we go for next? We, yeah. we, we always wanted solar panels, price of energy just now. We've probably from from moving and stuff, we've got a little bit banked. Should we just use it? Um, very very privileged, very fortunate to be able to make that decision. But then we're like, okay, yeah. solar, and then we're like, okay, what next? When when's the heat pump? When's this? When's that? When's the, when's yeah, the EV so or when's the?
0: This is where the retrofit coordination comes in. So you're you're probably neither old enough or sad enough to remember these books. But as a kid, I used to love these kind of fantasy books where you you kind of turn to page 34 and at the end of it it would be like if you, you, know, either you sort of accept the golden goblet of fire or or B, try and slay dragon or C, run for the hills and each one would give you turn to a different page number and I was <laughs> talking about retrofit coordination, somebody mentioned one of these books back to me and said yeah it's like one of those books because your pathway through this journey of decarbonizing your life, particularly your home once you're set on a particular pathway you become kind of locked in down a a certain route. Now, what you don't want to do is spend ten grand on the wrong solar battery and inverter and smart you know smart system or you know whether it's the wrong heating technology. They've all got to link together. Mm-hmm. And so you could really do with somebody quite early on to lay that journey out for you. Yeah. Um, so maybe the Dungeons and Dragons analogy didn't quite work, but <laughs> hopefully you get my drift.
2: That's so. That's what you're saying, Matt. Is that's how we train. Retrofit coordinators is... Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It'll all come together.
0: Exactly. But um, so, I mean, look, there's there's a whole lot of other stuff happening around us, right? I mean, I'm trying to write yes. my my teaching slides on energy policy. And I'm, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible at the moment because each week I'm having to revi- revise them. Today, Fraser, we've had um, an announcement from Bayes. They're looking to uh, impose a an electricity generation windfall tax. They're not calling it a windfall tax. They're calling it a cost plus revenue limit. We're not sure what it will involve. That There seems to be – it seems to really divide opinion, actually, on this. And we, we'll maybe get into this when we know more detail. But a lot of the electricity generators have done very well from high gas prices because they've mm-hmm. – through merit order and, and market trading – this is dragged renewable
2: prices higher as well, nuclear too. So there is some logic on, on that. Matt, we've uh, with Regen. There's been a little bit of thinking internally around this. There's a little bit of thinking externally around it. But in our discussions that we've had with developers that we know people who work in in renewables too, there's been a sense throughout that you know we're we're actually doing well out of this, and we'd happily. I mean, I, I don't mm-hmm. think you know, I'm um, a genuine, sincere sort of. We we could also be be contributing here, giving giving something back here. Maybe less cynical than you know the CEO of Shell announcing that. Oh yeah, taxes, please taxes, please taxes. I don't know if I believe yeah. that necessarily, but certainly the renewables, the low carbon side of things, there's been a a desire to to reappropriate some of that. I think.
0: Well, it's it's about legitimacy, right? So I mean, if yeah. if the general public is seeing um, low carbon power generators earning more than they should, maybe that will damage their their legitimacy over the long run. And that won't be good for net zero. So, but at the same time, you don't want to dissuade investment in low carbon power generation either. I think this will be a really, really thorny consultation, something for us to get into for a later episode, I think. Yes, yes. Agree. But that isn't the only policy news, Fraser. We
2: live in the UK. It's it's, it's <sighs> a head spin. A blizzard of nonsense is, is what we've had. I don't know, I don't know. One thing that we have had, and that I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have been um, paying close attention to and probably kicking off about on social media, is the the drive to effectively ban solar PV farming on usable farmland. So this has been the, the big the big sushi recently the argument goes that you can provide more sort of general value to the economy you can do a hell of a lot for for energy security for for energy supply by installing large scale solar farms government doesn't want to do that doesn't like the look of them thinks they're a bit shiny a bit naff thinks it should be used for whatever farming beef dairy etc cetera, etc cetera, instead wants to ban them completely mm-hmm. should say that they haven't implemented the ban but this is the discussion that's happening just now yeah
0: it seems to be the way of policy making where you announce it many many months before you do it and it depends as kind of like a threshold of public disgust (laughs) if it reaches that then they they may U-turn so I'm not sure where we are on that dial on this one but yeah this is a whole thing about regrading Uh, best and most versatile land, and incorporating 3B or grading 3B, which is kind of quite marginal or middling land, and putting that into that bucket of, you know, good quality agricultural land. And that would squeeze out solar PV installation. Now, this is odd because we've been waiting since 2015 to unleash onshore wind uh, in England, I might add. Scotland has been going great guns. Um, But we've, we've had big planning regulations basically on this, which have essentially banned onshore wind. They're also removed from subsidies the contracts for difference. It was about two weeks ago that we had an announcement from uh, the Chancellor saying that we, these restrictions would be lifted. Onshore wind was to sail once again uh, on, on the, you know, the, the, the agricultural and the, the highlands and lowlands of, of England. Two weeks later, they then announced this on solar PV. So it's just so peculiar. Like, what's the strategy because why would you unleash onshore wind, yeah. which could well be on agricultural land or marginal agricultural land, particularly uh, upland mm-hmm. where it's windy, um, and maybe sheep grazing, for instance, and then and then ban onshore wind? Uh, uh, sorry, ban um, uh, ground mount so, solar.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's complete. It's it's backbench weather vane politics, and it's completely. You can see with with net zero, there's less of an understanding. I think publicly about things like the scale of solar farming, things like the, the amount of land that it requires, the amount of value that it generates, the amount of energy that it generates, the role that it could play, versus onshore wind is well understood and people are kind of like, well, actually, nobody really minds the look of them anymore. It was never really a massive deal in the first place. Like NIMBY's not as big a deal as for onshore as it has been. Still a bit of it, but not as much as it has been. So I think the understanding and the the sentiment has shifted quite clearly publicly versus solar which feels like an easy point of contention. You put it before off-air, Matt, when we were chatting, it's kind of given with one hand, taken taken away with the other. Seems to be. But it's it's so incredibly frustrating when you think about how cheap solar is. I think pound for pound mm. among, if not the cheapest form of, of energy we can generate right
0: now. Okay, before we move on, on to this coming episode, I think just the, the last point on that is in the leadership contest, I remember uh, Liz Truss making reference, you know, uh, ground mount solar, bad rooftop solar good mm-hmm. and uh, i believe i'm correct on that and you know the question is well what are they doing to kind of unlock that i know we've seen vat derated on 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 solar which does make a big difference for the installation of this but then you look again you know i mean i, I was exploring i'm in a, a conservation area here called at the council earlier this week can i get my solar on on um on my roof you know i'm assuming this would be permitted development, don't need, oh, you'll need planning permission for that, which means, you know, I, I'd been through that process for for double glazing. So you think, well, mm-hmm. you know, if if you're gonna if you're gonna push against one, you need to support the other. Um in, in, yeah, in my
2: Absolutely, view. absolutely. And let's let's pull that back to let's let's bang the drum of the just transition just for a minute here. Because if you're if you're gonna place all the responsibility for the transition largely onto households to to fight with councils and install the solar, etc. etc. While penalising gas boilers, while gas prices are, are rising, you are opening yourself up to massively increased inequalities, mm. accepting that maybe this just isn't something that's on this government's radar, right? That's, that's fine. That's a position that you can take. Um, But then you run the risk of doing exactly the kind of net zero transition that Conservative backbenchers, Conservative government have been warning about for a long time. And that is one that damages or or leaves people behind in the process. So you have to be willing to give support somewhere, at least beyond the oil and gas licences and the occasional... You know, make an ass of the Green Homes Grant. You have to be willing to do something more sustained and targeted to exactly to, to resolve. This.
0: And let us remember that a lot of rooftop solar that's going on right now is the decision is being made by owner occupiers who are able that's to it. afford this stuff. I mean, Fraser, exactly. you would be in that category. Uh, and but you know, many people don't have the um, don't have that, that ownership. They don't have that
2: autonomy. They don't have the capital in the bank to install. Definitely, I, I think interesting interesting point on this is a lot of, an, anecdotally a lot of conversations that i have with my friends and with my family who still live in the same kind of place that we that we come from where where we've just returned to we're we're fortunate we're well off i i married a solicitor i i did the right thing did very well for myself <laughs> but for friends and family that i have they're all they're all very much of the opinion that of course we would have solar panels of course we would do all this but we don't have the the money in the bank to get this done or at least not the incentive to take out finance to get something like this done or to 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 make this happen and reap the benefits of it, which is not a reason that you need government to lead the full transition and do absolutely everything itself, but you need something that helps yeah. bring those people along for the ride because the appetite is there. Yeah. Unless you're willing to get a little bit creative in your policy to support that appetite, you're going to find that you're, you're, you're going to struggle to get this done in, at scale or in time. And you're leaving people behind. So I think that segues nicely onto the episode today. We're talking
0: about, you know, no surprise, the energy crisis again, but we're talking... Fuel poverty, how bad things got, what are we doing to tackle this? Now, there are, Fraser, we have tackled this before. Um, I think we have to go all the way back to April the 7th. for the last kind of concerted episode on this, we also did uh, what I found was a fascinating episode on energy poverty, energy crisis, and and disability, um, which really unpicked a lot of these. But we haven't covered this since the energy price cap announcement and the subsequent energy price guarantee policy put in put in place by by government. So, for the first time, I think Fraser, we're starting to see just how bad things are and and what the, mm-hmm. the winter holds. So. This episode today really is asking some experts to tell us a bit more who are on the ground, who are researching this, who are involved, you know, in that, how bad things have got.
2: Other side of this, um, if we can be allowed to to find an upshot for a second, is that we we know how how bad it is, but we also have a little bit of certainty in terms of what the prices are going to be, maybe an opportunity to 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 kick into gear and accelerate our response to, to dealing with it now that we know what it's loosely going to look like. The other
0: way of looking at it is we also know what government is prepared to do and not prepared to do. So we know that they're prepared to limit our bills on average by capping the unit price, not the total bill to roughly uh, two and a half thousand pounds for dual fuel. That's on average. But as, as we're recording this, they're not prepared to fund and deploy a nationwide energy advice campaign, a big turn down campaign. So we're seeing, this kind of advocacy, energy advocacy vacuum, which is being filled by lots of different stakeholders.
2: There's a really frustrating thing about this in that we've had some of this discussion before, and I'm looking forward to getting into it today. But we know that it works, and we know from other places that even little things, uh, little bits of advocacy, little requests from government or from the the regulator for households to turn down if they can or to shift behaviours a little bit, tend to work. And in the context of... Fuel poverty, of course, being a huge thing, and we've got a a big black hole in support as well as advice for people who desperately need it. But when we're talking about, however seriously we're talking about, things like blackouts and demand over the winter, to not be considering this feels like I'm
0: I'm increasingly the hell of the of view that. that it's not necessarily a bad thing that government aren't running it I just think it's really bad that they're not funding it yeah yeah uh, because that we we know I mean you know trustee chair of South Seeds we're doing this stuff on the ground you know we are bringing people in we have last time I so we had a wait list of weeks just to have to have a meeting with somebody to help them pay their bills and uh, you know inform them about what they can do we, we desperately need to to expand the number of staff that we have, also the, the phone line capacity to get through to utilities to draw down that emergency funding. Um, underfunded doesn't quite cut it. And it's not just us, you're seeing these national charities, NEA who we're going to talk to, National Energy Action, Citizens Advice. Um, so if government aren't going to throw £15 million pounds at a nationwide turn down campaign, let them throw £15 million pounds at least, why not times that by 10, to um, throw that, at organisations at various different levels to support that messaging. Because I don't think it's a bad thing hearing this from different actors at different times, at different levels in different ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on that note, Fraser, we must stop because we're eating into the the oxygen <laughs> and time for our guests. So um, we ought to bring them in.
3: I'm Jess Cook. I lead the People Living in Water Poverty and Fuel Poverty Work Programme at the charity National Energy Action, who is a fuel poverty and energy efficiency charity.
4: Hi, I'm Amy Ambrose. I'm Professor of Energy Policy at the Centre for Regional Economic and Social Research at Sheffield Hallam University. I'm, I'm primarily interested in how energy policy lands in people's everyday lives.
0: Jess, Amy, welcome to the pod. Amy, welcome back to the pod, in fact. Uh, great to have you back. You. So Fraser and I were talking before here about this isn't the first time we've covered the energy crisis. I mean, this has been rumbling on now for best part of a year. Um, well, longer than a year, depending on when you, when you uh, said it sort of began. But this is the first time we've covered this issue after the price cap rise and after the announcement of government's price guarantee scheme. Um, so I j- just, now is the opportunity for us to take the temperature of, of how bad things have got and just wanted you to reflect. Maybe if I begin with, with yourself, Jess, given that you're with the NEA, you are very much at, at, at the forefront of, of this crisis. What are you seeing in terms of the scale and reality of the fuel poverty crisis. What does it mean for millions of households today and, and of course in the, the coming winter?
3: Yeah, thanks Matt. I think um if we you're right, it's been over a year now. If we if we look back to where we were before the first record price increase in October last year, you know, we had 4 million households in in fuel poverty. That record increase we re- rose to 4.5 and then in April, when it rose yet again, we rose to six six 6.5 million. That's a massive, massive jump alone. If we hadn't had the announcement from the energy price guarantee and the price cap had risen to three and a half thousand as was expected, that number could have been around the nine million mark. Thankfully, we're in a position where it's at 6.7 million, which is still a massive increase. You know, we're talking two and a half million households more than we had in September last year. And so bills have doubled in that time. In just one year, the price you're going to pay for heating has doubled. And that's, that's massive. And the impacts are huge. We're seeing constantly people coming to us in, in real dire situations with nowhere else to turn. And it's just becoming harder and harder because the things that we can do for them are, are more limited than ever before. And you want to help and we do everything we can, but they are making horrendous decisions. Decisions that actually are out of their control completely with what they're doing in their daily life.
0: Uh, uh, maybe before I, if, before we come on to, to Amy, what kind of decisions? What what is the everyday decision making that these households are having to 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 walk through?
3: I mean, everybody's heard of the heating or eating situation. Some of these households now aren't doing either; they're just not. We're seeing situations where they they're, they're not that they, they are self disconnecting because they they just don't have. The, um, the, the money there to top up their prepayment meter or they think okay we'll self-ration to quite extreme levels because we know we can't afford it so you know it, it's October now things have the temperature's dropped I'm feeling the difference I'm sat here wearing a jumper today yeah,
0: we're, we're all sitting here with yeah big jumpers on uh, you know
3: these households <laughs> will be sat there with jumpers on coats in going to bed Mm. even wearing a coat and extra blankets to try and keep warm because they're doing everything they can to stop putting the heating on and that's already in October what's it going to be when it hits January or February
0: and that that of course will have a knock-on effect i've been seeing in the news today and also uh a colleague of mine uh, professor uh, Lucy Middlemiss at University of Leeds flagged this as an issue a few days ago is about mold in people's homes if we're not heating our homes we've got a potential health issues so there's a there's a there's a possible knock-on there's a
3: huge knock-on
0: i mean that's that's really shocking to hear Jess we'll obviously dig into this a little bit more in a moment amy from um a research perspective i mean obviously it won't just be research you know, no doubt it involved uh, with practitioners as well from a kind of bird's eye view, what are, what are you seeing here in terms of of how deep this crisis is, but also how fast things are escalating?
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it's absolutely, I mean, this, this word's been overused, but it's absolutely unprecedented. And I think um, we look back to the days now a couple of years ago when we had between three and four million households in fuel poverty in the UK. And I look back to that time and I think it was really within our grasp to solve that, to eradicate it at, at that time. I think we're now seeing the government borrowing billions and billions um, of pounds to enable the cap, but also for their sort of everyday, um, day-to-day spending. And I wonder why we weren't able to, to raise that, that kind of finance to, for a mass insulation program to improve our resilience to external price shocks like we're seeing. That probably doesn't really address your question, but I think we got some insight into the kind of difficulties people will be experiencing this winter during the pandemic. That put an awful lot of pressure on households in terms of energy use due to the amount of time people were spending at home um, at that time. Obviously, prices weren't as high, but usage um, was very high. And we did some research at that time, which showed the kind of range of coping strategies that people were, were employing. So things like Jess was talking about, you know, heating or eating, eating food that's cheaper with a lower nutritional value, not having a hot meal, so just not warming food. But also things like people spending as much time out of the house possible. So spending time in the homes of friends and family who perhaps could afford to heat the home or in public places or on, on public transport. And that sort of thing often gets overlooked those kinds of coping strategies but they have really quite significant psychosocial impacts on people in terms of of well-being we all like to retreat back to home don't we at the end of the day and kind of re- recover from everything that's happened and you know 7 million people or 7 million households sorry mm. are going to struggle to do that this this winter Home's not going to be a sanctuary for them anymore.
0: No, uh, before I hand on to Fraser, just picking up very briefly there on one of the first points you you made, which was around public borrowing, which which has happened to pay unfunded borrowing as it currently stands to pay for this price guarantee. And there are now suggestions that 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 price guarantee essentially making up that shortfall between what we can afford and the price of energy, which could have been dealt with Through an insulation programme. To pay for that borrow, we might be looking at public service cuts, and public spending cuts. Now, a lot of what we've been talking about here, actually underlying that, um, are public services which very much look look to tackle this issue in the first place. So it's, I, I don't know, I'm just, just picking up on what you said before, is, 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 could, could the way that this crisis has been handled actually make the crisis worse, ultimately?
4: Yes, I think, I think that's a very real risk. I've been very worried to hear about the prospect of very deep cuts to, to public spending. You know, the NHS are going to be on the front line of this crisis. We know people get more ill when they can't heat their homes to a safe and, and comfortable level. I expect they're going to face cuts. Uh, public health services across the board are needed to, to respond to this crisis. They're going to be on the front line of it. And what about the, the government departments who are on the front line of developing responses to, to the climate crisis, which, of course, this problem is, is closely linked to? I'm, I'm very, very worried about the prospect of this. And, of course, it seems bizarre in the face of, of record profits on the part of, of energy companies and energy wholesalers.
2: It is, and after a after a, a decade or more of of austerity, of cuts to public services, local authority budgets, et cetera, you have to wonder what's left to cut mm. at this stage in a time where reliance on those services has never been never been more acute or more more sharply uh, obvious. I think in in general, um, a question for for Amy first, and again speaks to a little bit of the the work that you've done. In terms of the the crisis itself within wider sort of the, the public narrative, the, the wider conversation, do you think our relationship now or our understanding of, of energy, how we use energy, how we think about it as a as a public has has fundamentally shifted as a result of this crisis?
4: I think we will see some shift in the extent to which we're all engaged with and, and understand, you know, the sort of the consequences of, of different levels of energy use. I think our energy literacy will will probably um, generally improve. Energy has has never been more in the news. You know, it's headline news. It never used to be. It used to be something very much in the, in the backgrounds of, of of people's lives. I think that awareness, hopefully, will will be helpful in the context of, of the climate crisis. If we are going to take something positive from this, a greater uh, awareness of, of the consequences. Of, uh, of energy policy of not exiting those volatile global fossil fuel markets if we can take away a better awareness of, of the consequences of, of those decisions not to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels into our everyday lives then I think that will be, be quite a positive thing it's unfortunate we have to get to this point though to, to kind of raise people's awareness
2: absolutely absolutely and uh, Jess I think awareness is, a, is an interesting thing here we recently had um the announcement of a potential campaign to to support sort of awareness advocacy from the government that then kind of went down the tubes in a a blaze of glory isn't the right phrase for it at all it kind of just went under the carpet is this is awareness something and, and advocacy more generally I'm, I'm I'm sure we're aligned on this But is this something that we have to be thinking more about in the the response to this crisis, beyond just price controls, beyond just market reforms? Is enough being done to to support the the organisations like NEA who are doing this work on the ground?
3: Yeah, I think awareness can be looked at for, from a number of different angles. So, so, Amy was just talking there about you know being more aware or more energy literate, I suppose, of of the changes that you might be able to make. Um, what I'd, what I'd add to that just before I, I properly answer your question is that I think. But for, for the majority of households, is absolutely right. You know, energy literacy will probably increase. People will become more aware of the things that they can do themselves for the lowest. And, you know, this isn't just energy. I mean, yes, we're talking about an energy crisis, but it's a cost of living crisis and we're seeing it across everything. And so, you know, like I work a lot with the water sector and they have a lot of affordability support that's out there. But awareness of it is extremely low. So, yes, we absolutely need to do more to to make that make people more aware of what support does exist. But I think there's the awareness on the other side as well. So these larger organisations, they need awareness of what's going on on the ground. They need to listen to charities like ourselves, to people actually just sharing their stories, that lived experience, being a bit more aware of the, the circumstances people are finding themselves in, the challenges that they're facing, and being able to respond um, quite proactively really to, to them is something that I think we we see now and again, but I'd like to see an awful lot more of. So it's not always about putting the onus onto the customer. It's definitely about um, looking at what those larger organisations, even government can do.
0: So if, if I can jump in here, this is something that Fraser and I were discussing uh, just before, and something I, I I tweeted about last night. I've been scratching my head about where we're at in terms of this energy advocacy. Government has basically come out and said, we are not prepared to fund and lead a nationwide energy advocacy campaign, a big turndown campaign, I, akin to something around COVID regs, you know, the kind of wash your hands state, space and all the rest. And what that's done is create a vacuum, which we've seen lots of different actors fill, which I think is a really positive thing, I I might add. You know, you're seeing folk like Martin Lewis jump in with Money Saving Expert. We're seeing Nesta running their boiler campaign. Uh, We've also seen existing organisations, just NEA. We're seeing Citizens Advice stepping up and filling that void. But there's now this kind of soup, this milieu of different organisations, many of which echoing the same same messaging. But it's quite a complex space now, and part of me thinks that's great because depending on who you are and the language you speak and the kind of cultural values that you hold, you're probably going to find somebody delivering a message on this that resonates with you now. But at the same time, most people will look at this space and feel quite overwhelmed by it. It's very complicated. So who do I go to? I just wanted to get, get your take. Maybe Amy, if we can be in with you and c- come to Jess, you know, is this... Is this a good or a, it's so difficult to put it in binary terms, but is it a good or a bad development that we're seeing?
4: My sense is, actually, that, that the kinds of organisations you're talking about, those voluntary community sector organisations that are perhaps plugged into specific communities that might be termed hard to reach, I think they would have stepped in off the back of a national campaign anyway to interpret, to add additional support to signpost people. This is where you can... Can get help with your specific situation. But I mean, I had reservations about the national campaign anyway. I'm not saying it's a good thing to have shelved it at all because I think the motivations for that are purely financial, possibly a little bit ideological as well. But I had concerns about that. There are, I mean, this needs more concerted attention through research, but there are some indications from bits of research that have, have been done about how people respond to, to messages about conserving energy and respond to things like smart meters in the home, there's some worrying indications within that, that it's the people who actually are not consuming enough energy, i.e. they need to be, you know, upping their, their consumption of energy to be living a, a safe and a socially and economically included life that actually respond to those messages. They cut their energy use further still in response to, that, to those campaigns, usually because that, you know, they want to try and save, save as much money as, as they can. So I would be be quite worried about a blanket campaign that tells everybody to turn down the heating or or whatever it is, because people's situations are very different. There are people out there who really do need a warmer home than, than the average individual because of, of healthcare reasons, all sorts of, of reasons. So the one size fits all nature of a campaign like that, it was inevitably going to be one size fits all, might improve energy literacy, but it might also um, result in, in people reducing energy consumption to dangerous levels. Why aren't we targeting those sort of profligate users of energy? We know we know where they are. We know who they are. Why not a specific campaign targeted at high consumers?
0: Oh, that's fascinating, Amy. And again, maybe the parallels I drew with COVID are are, are not fair in terms of a campaign because you know maybe a one size fits all. Would work better for a pandemic situation, although of course mm. pe- people were more exposed to the risk than others. Jess, you're in the middle of this. You are a big player in terms of messaging to to those. You know how, how you can help people reduce their bills during this energy crisis. How have you seen the space change? That the advocacy space change, and or even the way that you're delivering advocacy. You mentioned that you'd you'd set up an online portal chat function. is this this changing or are you just doing what you were doing before the energy crisis but just more
2: of it?
3: So we're doing an awful lot more of the conversations that we're having with the people who are struggling the most so um, we've always worked with with low-income households, fuel poor households. We've always delivered projects with them. But now we are speaking to far more of them on a day-to-day basis than previously because they don't know where else to turn. And they say our our name in the media and and being mentioned by others that they maybe are trusting. So that's one of the key things, I think, with, with anything with advocacy and getting those messages, that campaign, It depends who that individual trusts as to who they're going to listen to. That's not necessarily going to be their energy supplier or network. It's not necessarily even going to be government. It's going to be probably the people that they know will support them, such as charities, um, and they're more likely to listen. So we definitely see more that we're speaking to on an individual basis. Messages that are going out, you know, we're, we're very mindful of the messages that are going out for the exact reasons that Amy mentioned. Our client base particularly are that low-income group that chances are are already self-rationing, possibly disconnecting to, to some quite dangerous levels. And we wouldn't want them to do that anymore. We've actually, what we want them to do is to find where, this, uh, you know, access the support that's out there make the most of um, the energy that they do use at home get the most out of it rather than reduce it. Um, And I think that that's that's a a really different message. What I will say though is that I do think that there is a a requirement for a national message to go out, however that's delivered. And that for me at the minute, the, the one that's the most important to go out is around the energy price guarantee and the fact that it's not a 2,500 pound limit on what you will spend. So uh, we've had people and we've seen it on social media and, and in conversations. Well,
0: even our prime minister made this. Even our yep. prime
3: minister, e- even conversations with like my friendship group where they have thought, it is £2,500 I can use as much as I want and I won't pay any more and they think you know actually I could afford that I could I could budget for that it might be a squeeze but I could do it that's not the case at all that £2,500 as we on this call all know is you know is is a typical household um who is a typical household we know that what that means in regards to kilowatt hours used for electricity and gas but you'd have to look at your own individual bill to understand if that's you and it's very unlikely that it's going to be you you know uh, we're in we're in a situation where we use less gas than the typical household but we use more electricity than the typical household in my house so i don't even exactly match match that and i'm aware of the energy that i'm using at home and and you know i work for a charity that looks at this so we need, we need that message to go out. You use more, you'll pay more. You use less, you'll pay less. But you need to do so in a way that's safe and keeps you safe at home. And that's, that, I think, is something where we could have national messaging um, to make that far clearer.
2: So, given given this distinction, then Amy, given how obviously different people, different situations, different communities, different groups, however however you want to delineate, is there a, a greater or maybe a more important role for for local within this crisis in terms of how we're tackling it and how we how we reach people to deal with it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what what we really need here, I think, which has been a message, you know, coming out of of your podcast. For some time, is you know we need radical system change. We need to decouple ourselves from these volatile international fossil fuel markets. We've seen it's absolutely crystal clear that the price of producing renewable energy has not changed throughout this this crisis. It is considerably, vastly lower than the production costs associated um, with with fossil fuels. So it's a no brainer. We need to transition. Um, to a renewable energy a primarily renewable um, energy system that is within our control there's all this emphasis on energy sovereignty that is the way to to achieve energy sovereignty that's looking like a long way off things like cancelling the green levies associated with our, our energy bills is you know really concerns me in terms of how much that will set us back with our progression towards a renewable energy system so let's Let's act locally where, where we have got the scope to act. You know, local authorities are really, really squeezed in the UK financially. I think many of them on the verge of kind of declaring bankruptcy. But I would like to see more leadership on the part of, of local authorities and, and locally active organisations in spearheading this transition. Let's break free from the system that's, that's causing us all this, th- these problems.
0: Well, I, and I think on that, that this kind of coalition of the willing is something that may fall out of this energy crisis, where you've actually got stronger groups, allies in this space that have had to work together during this energy crisis, but almost against the grain of support. I mean, local authorities obviously stripped to the bone after austerity, unable to fund the necessary staff and resources to, to lead those campaigns. but. But hopefully something may fall out the back of this. I, I wanted to, to come back to something, Amy, that, that you'd said, and also hear from Jess on this. One of the big, big things I'm finding, and I probably fit this category, of the kind of, and I don't like using terms of, of class, but I, I will use it. Use it. See it loads. See it loads. Okay, Well, what, whatever we want to call it. I, I'm, I'm sort of middle income. Uh, I'm concerned a, enough about energy prices and also environmental issues, that I'm trying to reduce my energy consumption. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not in that fuel poor category. So what I've done and other people that in this bracket are investing is a capital expenditure to reduce their operational expenditure. They're investing in things like uh, whether it's microgen or plug-in hybrid or an air fryer, you know, they're investing in these things to reduce their, their long-term. Now, there's that band and that that's I mean, if you look at the news yesterday some of the stuff that's flying off the shelves with curries and john lewis and all this stuff this is the kind of stuff you know these appliances but you have to have the capital to invest in that and so that feels like a completely different band for messaging and something that we should we should positively encourage in my view versus the band which are unable to afford that i'd just maybe if i can begin with you is this something you hear from national energy action you've got kind of obviously if you're you're a poor organisation mostly that band who are unable to afford the capex to reduce the opex but have you also got that that other band that you weren't normally contacted by before
3: um yeah i i think we do so it was something you know that we've been seeing to be honest we've probably been seeing it since the beginning of the pandemic um, you know, the, the the middle income households, some of them say so it's hard to differentiate entirely, but you've got, say, the lower end of your middle income households. Yes. Those that might have been those just about managing households, maybe, that suddenly the change to their income due to reductions, say, in the furlough or things like that, suddenly noticed a massive difference and suddenly were unable to manage in the way that they had been before then you've got that that impact then happened on the middle-income households where because of furlough, incomes were limited. Um, and they maybe, their, their mortgage payments, for example, were a rather substantial proportion of what they were taking in on a monthly basis. And so their lifestyles changed. So we've actually seen this now for a couple of years. Now, this time, you are absolutely right with the way that the energy crisis has hit. Middle-income households more than ever before are feeling the impacts And it's not a group that know what they're doing they don't know how to respond in the same way it's fascinating, yeah. low-income households particularly very low-income households are amazing at budgeting you get these messages that are coming through sometimes from government they need to be more savvy with their shopping they need to be not buying the more expensive products i tell you now they know every single penny and where it's going and every penny matters
0: A- amy anything to, to, to add on this just in terms of that kind of messaging and how that that you mentioned before that different campaigns for different groups and different circumstances
4: yeah I, I think it's really interesting that um that perhaps that, that middle bracket of households are, are reaching out to the the, technolo- the technology basically to to get them through this transition in my view it is that it's potentially the wrong the wrong technology that they they they're reaching out to i think in all of this we've got to get the balance right between solutions that help us now but also solutions that will give us a greater resilience to these kinds of, of, of price shocks and exogenous shocks um, in, in the future. I suppose it very much depends on, on the budget you've got available to you. But, you know, if you're able to insulate your home and, you know, potentially install something like an air source heat pump, if it's suitable for your property and in your area, that's going to stand you in. It's a big, it's a big investment but it's going to stand you in in better stead to weather these storms, which will keep on coming as the climate crisis unfolds. The geopolitical situation doesn't look to be any better. We need to be looking to to the long term, as well as these sort of sticking plaster fixes, like one-off payments and air fryers, or whatever they may be. If we're borrowing billions for general government spending, can we not borrow billions to give um, the most vulnerable households an installation program and an air source heat pump, or whatever the most suitable technology is.
0: Sounds sounds far too sensible, Amy.
4: That's why I'm not running the country.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think this is this is part of the key conversation as well. And we had a conversation about it before. And Amy, I'm, I, I dare say there's 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 certainly research out there about it. Is if you're effectively leaving people to their own devices within thinking about the transition longer term leaving it to people to buy their way out of it, you're going to have a huge gulf in terms of who gets to reap the benefits, who who doesn't get to reap the benefits.
4: That's what we've always done yeah, uh, in this country in terms of, of transition, actually beyond this country as well. Generally, energy transitions have, have been, you know, those who can pay to participate have benefited uh, first. And, you know, we still have, I'm sure Jess will be be aware of this from work that NEA have done. We've still got uh, communities in this country who haven't participated in in the last energy transition to gas central heating for lots of different reasons, but partly because of, of cost barriers to participating. We need to reverse that this time around, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen.
2: Well, this this is this was the question that that I was coming to. Is we often have this this freeman of if we're going to do net zero, it's going to harm the working class, it's going to harm lower income households and stuff. I don't want to to ask you what are the tensions there. I want to ask you how do we put those communities, those households at the front of this to enable that just transition, so we don't make those mistakes again.
3: Yeah, I think first and foremost, we you know we should be talking to them. We should be engaging with them. No choice. No no changes should be forced on a household. Um, they need to make sure that they're suitable for that household, and they all have individual needs, whether they be health needs, levels of comfort, financial needs. You know, we need to take all of these into consideration. It's really important that we don't leave anybody behind in a net zero uh, transition, but it's also really important, I think, that we start with the worst first. So we talk, you know, we're talking about an energy crisis here. What can you do to stop this being something that happens in the future? you address the fact that we have the least efficient housing stock in Europe. You know, we we if we're going to achieve our net zero targets, we've got 85% of the 29 million homes in the UK that potentially need to be retrofitted. And you need to do that at a rate of 20,000 properties a week. We're doing 20,000 a year. So we need. it's a massive increase that we need. But you need to start with the people that are in the least efficient homes to have the biggest impact. And that's not just the biggest impact on bills, it'll have a huge impact on bills, but it'll have the biggest impact on trying to, to progress the transition as well because you have less energy wasted. So it totally makes sense to start with those households. You know, they, they, I talked a little bit earlier about um, the price guarantee and how you, if you use more, you pay more. Some people are using more because they live in such an inefficient home, you know, a band F or J home. They're not paying 2500 pounds a year they're not paying 3500 some of them are up at eight thousand 000 a year because their homes are just so inefficient so we have no choice we have to we have to look at that and we have to support people to be able to access those changes and do so in a way that they feel comfortable and that they they you know, the benefit
2: outweighs the risk. Absolutely, absolutely. Amy, same question.
3: Yeah,
4: well, I'm really not a fan of of the term that is particularly prevalent in, in when the European Commission talk about the transition of leaving nobody behind. I think for me, it's about who do we need to bring along first? And we've got pretty good insights, actually, you know, into who is struggling the most. As Jess said, you know, We know that we have a hugely energy inefficient housing stock and we tend to know which housing archetypes are the worst affected in that sense. We tend to know who the fuel poor are or who is most vulnerable to fuel poverty and and where they are. We need to, to pay for the transition for those households. Yes, not against their will and working with them. And there needs to be a lot of awareness raising of the multiple benefits for carbon reduction, for energy bill resilience. For health and well-being associated with with you know major insulation interventions but then we need we need to fully pay for this no VAT reductions or you know subsidies around the margins um, that will only make a difference to to those of us on, on middle incomes we need to get in there and we need to to pay for these these people to, to transition as soon as possible we've run out of time now and we're already seeing the kind of nightmare scenario in terms of of uh, our lack of control over our our energy prices mm. um, that we've been fearing for a long time, and we're almost out of time on limiting global warming to one point five degrees centigrade as well. So, you know, there's no more time. Just borrow and pay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we've almost run out of time for the pod, but we do have enough space. So. To- tomorrow there is a cook Ambrose Chancellor Prime Minister coalition you you're, you're head of the country I, I don't mind who takes the the, the top job it's will let you figure that out but you've got the option to impose one or two key policies tomorrow to 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 change the direction or at least maybe you want to keep the momentum going in this certain way that we, we are um maybe we begin with Jess what would we what would you be doing differently? What would have the biggest impact tomorrow if we could change anything?
3: I'd do two things I think. Um and I think I might have talked about both of them during this podcast. So first of all is I'd be listening. Um I think so many decisions at the moment seem to be made without truly considering the impact on those people who are struggling Um, and if they just took a little bit of time out to actually listen and to understand those real life experiences of the people that they represent um, then we might actually see a little bit less backtracking and more policies which deliver valuable targeted support and I think that's one that's really important the targeted element and then secondly for me I, I believe that we can find a balance and I'd be looking for that balance I do support growing the economy it's it's absolutely needed look at the state that we're currently in and in the long term it can have a a significant impact but you can't do that at the detriment of others You, you, you can't you can't grow something that works for some of the population but doesn't for others and others can't participate so you've got to introduce those measures and policies that deliver that balance helping the people that need it the most and helping them to participate in the growing economy
0: and that's where my focus would be you've got my vote amy please
3: (laughs) jess and i might have a few
4: things to reconcile if we're going to to co-govern only in the sense that i think we we need to to kind of end our our growth reliance to solve all of our our problems i'm a bit of a proponent actually of of degrowth because we just don't see an even distribution of wealth and resources under a a growth-based economy so i don't i don't agree that growth is is the way out of this but I, i agree with everything else you said uh, yes, I would. The main thing I would focus on is is kind of taking the profit element out of of things that are absolutely essential for life, such as energy and water, and that might involve nat- renationalisation. I would fully fund the transition for uh, the most affected households, as I said earlier, and I'd like to see also a greater focus on um, reducing the the consumption of of high-consuming households so there's a more uh, even distribution of of resources.
0: Well, I for one welcome our new leaders and Jess, Amy, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, You've been listening to Local Zero. Uh, Thank you to our guests. We've had an excellent time uh, covering what promises to be uh, an issue which will rumble on and on and if you haven't already please go and follow and find us at local zero pod on twitter to get involved in discussions over there uh, if you want to have a longer natter please email us at localzeropod@gmail.com. at gmail.com we love hearing from you and if you can please please do take a couple of minutes to leave us a review on apple Podcasts. tell us what you like what you don't like so we can tailor the experience more towards what you want and what you want to hear but until the next time thank you and
2: Goodbye, bye bye, bye, bye
0: Produced by the Spoken Media.